Welcome to the Jackie Service Show. I'm Jackie Service, where we are talking all things people strategy, entrepreneurship, and how hiring the right humans will unlock the next phase of growth in your business. As a former corporate VP of HR, my life completely shifted when I learned I had a brain tumor. From this moment forward, I knew that there was more. I dove headfirst into healing, mindset work, and spirituality. And from this space, my entrepreneur journey was born. Now I am a people strategist and founder of Serve Recruitment Agency, a boutique recruitment firm that helps scaling companies hire aligned leaders for growth. In this podcast, I'm going to share about my business journey, entrepreneurship, leadership, and how hiring the right humans unlocks massive potential. Welcome to the show. Are you confused about hiring? You're not alone. Majority of leaders struggle to figure out who they need, in what roles, and when, and how these people will have the greatest impact on the growth of their business. This is why we created People Strategy Sessions to do a deep dive into your business and help you build a clear roadmap on the talent you need to drive sustainable growth. We dive into your greater why, where you are today in your business, where you want to go in your business from a growth standpoint, and ultimately, who do you need to enable that growth overall? For more information, please send an email to Jackie at JackieService.com or feel free to reach out at JackieService across all platforms. Welcome back to another episode of the Jackie Service Show. I have a friend here that's a newfound friend and serial entrepreneur, CEO, and founder of a company called All Stacks. Hirsch, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited for, about this. We were just talking offline just about our backgrounds and a little bit about your story. And I'm excited to share a little bit more about your philosophy around leadership and building businesses and getting product out into the world with our listeners today. I'm looking forward to it. I love it. Before we dive into your story, which we will get to, I always love to start with a little bit of a rapid fire questions or so people Mm -hmm. can get to know you a little bit better. Sounds great. All right. You just shared this with me, but now we get to share it with everybody else. Where are you from? Where's your hometown? Uh, Born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina. Because the next question is, where do you live now? Still live in Raleigh, North Carolina. And went to school in Raleigh, North Carolina. School in Raleigh, North Carolina. Grade school, college, uh, grad school, all right here. And the business is founded in Raleigh, North Carolina. Founded in Raleigh. I'm a life. Which is awesome. There you go. You know what you don't always find, especially in the U.S. Uh, I find can- Canadians a little bit differently, but especially in the U.S. When I was traveling in and out of all these different states, when I worked for for PepsiCo. I would find that majority of people, you never really found people who were from that state. There were so mm-hmm. many people that moved around the U.S. frequently for yeah. different gigs. And it's really interesting that you've stayed local. I read recently that less than 55% of the residents of North Carolina were born in North Carolina at this point. Um, we have something like 100 people a day moving to our town. So it's wow, it's growing rapidly. I was kind of in a position where my wife's also from here. We uh, we were trading off school, grad school, starting a company, her going to grad school. And the next thing we know, we're in our 30s and we're still here and our friends have moved back. Mm-hmm. And our parents are way more interesting now. 
um, than they used to be. And maybe we'll just stick around. Um, now we have a three month old and it's been really nice to have our community here. It sure is. I have six year old twin girls, but I'll tell you at three months, it's the reason I moved home, which is, um, just outside of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, after being in the U S for about a decade was because we were pregnant with twins and to have my parents and my husband's parents and cousins close, that is invaluable. There's something so beautiful about it. And honestly, there was a survival mechanism too, for me Mm -hmm. that I needed more hands. So there's just more hands were needed with two kids is what I learned. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's why I love that. I'm actually curious. What is, what is pulling people to Raleigh right now? Like, what do you see going on in the, in the city itself that's drawing people in? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because if you had asked me when I started college, if I was going to stay in Raleigh, I would say, no, absolutely not. And there was like a four-year transformation that, that was coterminous with my time in university Mm -hmm. that suddenly it was a lot more interesting. And it's essentially like it actually started with the street that our offices are on, where it was a pedestrian mall for 30 years and was just dead. Nobody was interested in coming. There was no no investment in, in urban areas, no investment in cultural things. And a lot of that started to change. And it was very grassroots. Like, for example, there's this guy locally, his name is Sean Wilson, he led a campaign to change the laws around breweries so mm. that small breweries could exist. It used to be only corporate or large breweries. And so created the microbrew exception, self-distribution, things like that. So that kickstarted the brewery scene. I think beer is now the second largest industry in the state. Mm. Um, wow. More tech. You know, we had a little bit of a uh, depression in startups post the 2001 crash mm-hmm. that left a dearth of funding. And then in the in the late 2000s, early 2010s, the funds started to pick up and startups started to grow again. And I think generally in our generation, there's this move away from suburbia at, at some level, not totally, but enough that it creates centers of intermingling Mm -hmm. right investments in places where you can go have that third place right you're not just at home or work there's that third place you go hang out you interact with people and i think that flywheel perpetuates the interest in the region and so you say okay that attracts more interest attracts more people the bones were already there the universities were there and the cost of living is good the climate's good proximity to the ocean and the mountains like all that was already there that never changed but the rest of it the details changed and I think the details make a big difference I love that thank you for sharing I was just curious with a local's perspective of obviously seeing it change and evolve over the years you've been there and now running a business locally in the downtown core like it's I'm curious to hear a little bit about I was just curious to hear a little bit about the evolution of the city itself I love that yeah, yeah. You know, COVID was hard and COVID was hard mm-hmm. on a lot of downtowns. And so it's it's interesting to see. I read an article recently that a lot there there are five office buildings right in the core that are being considered to 
change from commercial to residential. So we're mm. looking to refit these buildings to residential. And I think for a downtown environment, especially with work from home being as prevalent as it is, moving from a commercial commercial to residential, or at least a majority residential model, is going to be critical. People mm. want to live in these spaces. They don't want to work in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. So true. I love that. Okay, we could talk about Raleigh all day. I need to come yeah. visit sometime <laughs> soon. It's been a while since I've actually had my feet in Raleigh. And I'd love to see some of the some of the changes you're talking about. I mm-hmm. bet you the last time I was there was probably 2015. So I'm sure lots has changed yeah. since then. Yeah. Changed. Yeah. All right, two more questions, then we'll dive into your story. A book that you recommend to everyone, something that's made an impact in your life. Uh yeah, I have one that I recommend quite a bit. It's like, I guess my favorite business book. Um, it's not a business book. It's called Boys in the Boat. It's mm. uh, about the University of Washington crew team. A friend of mine, another founder, recommended it to me. And the short version of the story. So it, it's one of those stories. If you read like Devil in the White City or any of these yeah. books, it's like there's a historical narrative overlaid with like a, a fictional narrative, kind of, you know, a novel and a, a history book in one. Um, it juxtaposes this guy, this coach who gets hired to build the crew team at the University of Washington with Nazi Germany's attempt to legitimize their government with the Berlin Olympics um, in, I think, 1936. And then ultimately they intersect where the team goes to the Olympics. Um, but the, the short version of the story is essentially, you know, you put the, you fill the boat with your, you know, eight or 10, whatever strongest rowers and the boat is slower. You fill the boat with eight or 10 people that gel the best Mm. and the boat is faster. Right. And so it's really about do we understand the motivations, the personalities, how these people work together? Are they compatible? There's still requirements, right? You, you, you still have to be good at rowing. It can't just be just mm-hmm. some guy off the street. You have to be good at what you do. But being the best in the team as a team is different than being the best individually. And mm, ultimately, that. the moral of the story, right, the, the takeaway lesson is, if you can construct that boat with that team that comes together, you can move faster than your statistics would say you would. That's so fascinating. I love that. Obviously with what I do all about team integration and people and hiring the right people. um, I'm so interested to actually dive into that book itself. I'm curious for you as a leader, how did Mm -hmm. that philosophy change how you thought about team and talent? I don't know that it changed it so much as it it reinforced it. Okay. It gave me a very good way to speak about it. I could leverage the shorthand. I could really understand what I was attempting to do in a little more pointed way. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a novel, right? It's not a, a checklist business book. Um, but when we go and we hire people in all stacks, for example, to required parts of the interview process is I interview every candidate or every person that's proposed as a, as a candidate to hire at least. And we do a 
cross-departmental cultural interviews. So somebody that'll be your peer mm. isn't in your department, isn't in your part of the org chart. To understand that, like, can you work with someone across the room from you that's not necessarily your coworker, right? Yeah. As your coworker in the bigger picture, you'll work in the same company. But sales interviews with engineering, engineering interviews with marketing, marketing interviews with product, product with CS, right? Just Love that. Completely cross-functional interview. And we do at least one um, with every candidate to, and, and it's of equal weight. If yeah, I love that. Review, they, they don't pass the interview altogether. Yeah, that's really helpful to kind of get a sense of how that, to your point, just validated what you were already feeling and also how it reinforces the importance of who's interviewing at what point in time and what's that process look like, which, you know, ultimately making a decision on hiring, I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, can be one of the most important decisions you're making in terms of the gel of the team, especially when you're building small dynamic teams. Mm-hmm. And when we hire wrong, the outcomes, not only, you know, from a financial standpoint, but the setback that then has culturally with trust and all sorts of different aspects of team dynamics show up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Right on. All right. Mentor who's impacted you the most when you think about building business and, or could be in your life as well. For me, it's not one person. There's, there are sets of people who have Mm -hmm. impacted me the most, but actually answer the question a little differently. Um, When we, before we started the company, we had gone through a program locally called Groundwork Labs. Groundwork Labs was kind of like an accelerator and it was run with a, it's run by an economic development organization. So like you don't even give equity and then eventually we got a grant from them and that was the first money into the company. But we had a little cohort of people and there were four of us or the CEOs who started getting together regularly every month mm. since 2017. And we, we still do it. All right, it's been six years. We still wow. get together every month, these four people. And having that peer group that we get to get together. And not only do we get together, and obviously, you know, we're friends now and our families know each other and we, you know, we're friendly. We care about each other a lot, but there's an accountability component of it. We've mm. had people, we, we've been very open with the group. We allow people to come in and we say, come join us. But just understand that you're going to get grilled <laughs> and we're going to hold you accountable for the things you're trying to do. And we're going to try to essentially break each other of the, the bindings of our existing ways we think to approach these problems in different angles. And hmm. I think it's solved in, you know, an hour or two over a drink in the evening, but if we can help each other get out of our boxes so we can tackle the problem differently and then follow up and really press each other on it. It makes a big impact. And there's always mentors. There's a lot of people that have done really amazing things for me, but what I found consistently is there's not a lot of people I know that have a group like that, Mm -hmm. that it's more than just platitudes. Yeah. And that's been written really impactful. There's something so potent about, 
peer group, whether we call them, I mean, there's so many different languages and, and words out there that we can call them, but you know, to me, that's the true identity of masterminding, right? Like we actually put people in a room who are peers who can push each other, hold each other accountable, ask different questions, see through different perspectives. There's something so beautiful about that energy when we say a mastermind yep. that obviously it was co-created with each other. There was a set of parameters that were created and then you've maintained it since 2016, yeah. 2017, which is, which is incredible, especially over COVID. Um, but to your point, you know, that those are the conversations that you start to, you start to build this foundation of trust. They're able to poke in areas and push you in different areas because you know, it's coming from a place of love. And yep. even if they're, you know, even if they're giving you a little bit of a shove one day, or it feels like you're taking all the heat one day, you know, it's for the betterment of self. Yeah. And, you know, different yeah. than some of the bigger groups or bigger rooms I've been in where it feels a little bit more like a political game of who's trying to get to know who versus mm -hmm. we're all just intently here to support one another rise, which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Has there been one of one moment in that group where somebody really challenged you on your thinking that helped open you up to a new discovery that then led into, into a change in your business or an evolution in your business? I think that one of the things that was very important and it's, it's happened to me, it's also happened to others in our group, was the check of, are you still having fun? Is this still worth it? Are you enjoying it? Because it goes up and down. It's always going to be easy and then hard and never really easy, but like harder, harder, right? And there's a mental tax, there's a physical tax, there's tax on your family life, everything that goes on. And what we've been able to do successfully with each other is identify when it feels like out there. Like you seem to be going through fatigue. Like let's examine that fatigue and let's understand, do you actually want this? Mm. And if you do, then let's figure out like, how do we get you out of the fatigue? And if you don't, then let's figure out how do you, how we get you out of the fatigue in a different way. And I've been fortunate in that, any moment I felt like that and I've been cross-examined by the group, I've come out feeling energized about what we're doing and, and say, yeah, this is what I want to do. We, we keep going. Mm. We've had various outcomes for the others at various moments and, and it's been really defining for them. I think um, similar to how it's been for us, but the key is, you know, someone at that level to, to ask that question. Right? Because yeah. typically when I work with another founder, I'll usually work with like one or two a year and just kind of be an advisor and, and try mm -hmm. to help. And they're, you know, a stage or two behind me. And so, you know, that way I can do something for them. But there's always this early like bravado period, right? Everything's great. Everything's perfect. Um, and, and when you push and say, you know, are you sure you really want to do this? Like, does this feel right to you? Do you? are you energized anymore? And it's like, yeah, everything's great. Everything's perfect. Like I'm, I'm loving how hard I'm grinding. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I think there's a vulnerability that comes, you know, partially with familiarity, but for partially with trust, like you have to really get to know how someone ticks before you can come in and be vulnerable with them or, or even recognize that they're being vulnerable with you. And 
we've gotten to that point in the group very naturally. We've gotten there very easily. It's been a long period of time. But I find that the faster we can do that in general, whether it's in the office, whether it's at home, you know, with our partners or it's with our friends, the deeper the relationship gets very, very quickly. One of our founders, his name is Adam. Adam joined us and him and I flew around the country trying to raise money. And we didn't have any money. So we were sharing crappy hotel rooms and we were, you know, flying bottom of the barrel everywhere. And he would stay at my house and I would stay at his house. He lives in Texas, I live in Raleigh. And we would stay at each other's house. We got to know each other's partners, like mm-hmm. kids, dogs, et cetera. To the point now where like he has a room in my house. And so, you know, we call it out of the room. And that's his room. And that's where he stays when he comes into town. He's he doesn't need to stay at my house anymore. He has a you know, we can get him a hotel, we can get him an Airbnb, whatever, but we prefer that. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason we got there so quickly was that really intense period of struggle of you know, this is the three thousand dollars we have. We gotta go raise money on it. That's it. I think you're so right. The, you know, I can think back to like the deepest connections I have are generally formed in some sort of, whether it's, whether we call it hardship or we were overcoming something, or we were connected at a deeper level where there's a little bit of grit and grind that had to happen for us to experience um, (laughs) something greater than ourselves. It's, you know, I, I, I jump in the I live up on Lake Huron outside of Toronto and I jump in the lake when it's 30 degrees outside, right? Wow. When it's snowing sideways and the three or four other people that do that with me every day mm-hmm. have, we have an innate connectivity because we do hard things together. Yeah. And they're the people you surround yourself who you do hard things together. That's just one example of many. And you're so right. You know what I think is uh, innate, so beautiful about what you shared is I don't know that we talk about burnout enough, or I don't know that we talk about, is this fun still enough? If we say it through a different lens, I think maybe we're talking more about burnout, but on a positive flip side, it's like, is this still fun? Is this invigorating? Is this something you want to continue to do? That's a question I, in all the interviews I've done in the last year has actually not come up as something that's been profound. I ask, I mean, I'm always the last person to interview a candidate. And I said, okay, met a whole bunch of people on the team. Do you think you'll have fun here? Mm-hmm. Life's not very long. And if you don't, if you're not going to enjoy it. There's a lot of places to get a paycheck. And I'm sure that there are other places. And I know there are other places that pay more than we pay. But it's very rewarding for the right kind of person. It can be extremely rewarding, extremely fun. We have a great culture. Um, we're, we're a set of people that knows how to enjoy each other's company while doing really hard things and, and doing it well. But if it doesn't sound fun, like don't waste your time. You're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to be your best. You're not going to go home feeling fulfilled, which is going to then propagate into poor performance and everyone suffers. So true. I love that question. I got to, you know, in 20 years of interviewing thousands and thousands of people, I'm not sure I've ever asked it that directly. You know, are you going to have fun here? Yeah. Where I get, where, where I generally find people get vulnerable with me is when they talk about, I'll ask a question about hardship. What's the biggest hardship you've overcome Mm -hmm. in your life and talk about the journey that you, that you went through. 
And man, that just, you know, after all the like niceties and I'm more conversational interviewing versus like robust and having a very scripted interview process. But when you can get somebody to open up and often that from my angle, it's always me going first, like, Hey, let me tell you a little bit more about myself. Let me tell you about, about my story of burnout and Hirsch while we're on it. You know, I was a corporate executive thinking that that was my path for my entire life mm-hmm. and was diagnosed with a brain tumor, wow. had hit burnout to the point where my yeah. body was physically breaking down because yeah. of the grind and the over just yeah. this men- mentality I had where it really stopped me in my tracks and had me reevaluate all things of life. And when you can lead with a conversation like that of like, Hey, let's meet in a place of vulnerability. Let's actually open open up to have a real conversation as humans. Mm-hmm. It really does shift what you're able to see. The mass usually start to drop off of here's how I think I need to show up. And let's just use interviewing as an example of I have to be polished or politically correct, or I have to say the right things in order to quote unquote, land the gig. And in reality, you know, even in this interview with you, it's like, we're just two humans having a conversation. And if we can learn something about each other or learn something from each other, then what a gift. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love your philosophy. I'm taking, cause I've always taken it from more of a vulnerability stance. I actually love the, Hey, are you going to have fun here? Question. I'm sure you get some really incredible responses to that one. That's pretty interesting. And you can tell who won't even if they say yes from their response because you have to even buy into the validity of the question. Hmm. Is it when you say that, I'm actually curious, tell me more. Is it their body language that you're reading? Is it the is it the way in which just like the energy of how they respond to that question presents itself? it can be startling, right? And that's fair. Because <laughs> this whole interview thing. It's like, all right, this sounds fun. And I think you have to think about it. Yeah. Right. Either you have this like instinctual, absolutely, yeah, it's, uh, really vibing with the culture, you know, and, and I love it. And it comes out really quickly. Or you think about it, you process the question, you say, yeah, you know what? I think I will. Mm. And there's like the very stiff in the middle, like, you know, like you were saying, the robust check the box interview interviewer. There's also the robust check the box interviewee. Yeah. And that's probably, at least for us, probably not the right person either. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, you can tell we're like deep into conversation. I love having just conversations, allowing them to go where they need to go because we're 30 minutes in and haven't yet introduced you to our audience and or shared what you're up to. So I'm going to actually ask you to just share a little bit more about born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina, went to school there, started businesses there, but talk a little bit more about your serial entrepreneur journey and some some of the key milestones along that path. Absolutely. So for me, it starts really young. When I was five years old, my dad quit his job and started his business and announced it to the house. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. I think I'm five. I don't know what that means. But for some reason, I remember it and it kind of stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And 
as I went through school, I was really fortunate at NC State, there's this program where you start a company instead of doing a senior project for, for your engineering degree. So I did my undergrad in electrical engineering and I ended up with this group of people and we started this company around a medical device. So we were building a device that would diagnose tuberculosis, primarily mm. for the developing world, you know, East mm -hmm. Africa, Southeast Asia. And it was like the best, you know, best experience I'd ever had. My experiences before, you know, I did some time at IBM. I didn't really enjoy it. I felt like IBM had this tool called Blue Pages. It's kind of like LinkedIn. I don't know if they still have it, but basically you could, it was like a corporate profile, right? It was like Facebook, but inside yeah. IBM. And it had this org chart, you to the CEO, right? All the different levels inside. And for me, as like software engineer one, there was two pages of scrolling before I got to the CEO. It's like, man, there's no future for me here. Um, then I got to do some work. So I, you know, I walked out the door at IBM. It was probably like the only door I've ever closed intentionally where I just said, nah, I don't want to work here. And they, they liked me, I guess, because they tried to put me into some other department. Nah, I'm, I'm fine. I don't want to do it, which is. You weren't having fun. If they asked you that question, it would have been fun. like, I'm not having that much fun here. Wasn't the most rational thing to do as like a 20 year old. Um, but nonetheless, that's what I did. Uh, I got introduced to this guy shortly thereafter who had started a, a company in the defense space and we were building equipment for submarines and aircraft carriers and things like that. Super, like super bleeding edge, which is really fun. But what was really fun about it was it was four people when I interviewed there. It was 12 when I started. It was 25 by the end of the summer by the next year they were 50 next year they were 100 next year they were 400 um, and it was physically manifested and they started the company in a strip mall and it was like one bay of the strip mall two bays of the strip mall four bays of the strip mall four-story building four four-story buildings like wow. you really see a double with your eyes uh, and they ended up selling the company shortly thereafter but I just got addicted to the growth right now. So this is, this is amazing. So fast forward a little bit, we had sold the medical device company. I was coming out of the startup. It's about six and a half years at the startup that had bought us. That was a spin out of Johnson Johnson. We were doing supply chain security. We we're analyzing got it. their counterfeits were entering the supply chain and, and how do we prevent that? And eventually started applying the technology to opioids, that company now focuses on like opioid diversion and, and wow. kind of securing the opioid supply chain. Um, and I ran engineering and product there and Jeremy Freeman, who's my CTO and, and other co-founder here at Allstax was our first hire as a first developer. And him and I worked together and we were a data company and we, we just kind of had this, it's very hard to communicate what is going on in engineering? You know, are we generating value? What are we working on? Why isn't it going faster? Why can't we just add another person? Why can't I just change what we do every three weeks and we still deliver on time? You know, these these questions were really challenging to answer. We were a data company, but we didn't have any data. So it was kind of like it was an experience we filed away for a long time. Eventually, I didn't want to spend all of my 20s in healthcare, 
technology. And so I, I moved on, uh, Jeremy came with me and we said, we want to start a company, another company. We want it to be probably in the software developer tool space. And we don't know what, so we're just going to do some, you know, we have mortgages and we're going to do some consulting work and just listen to teams complain. Mm-hmm. And in that complaint, we'll find our product. Mm-hmm. And we had kind of a unique perspective because we'd been running teams and all that. We often got brought into executive conversations. And in these conversations, we just heard team after team complain about the fact that like they didn't understand what was going on on their team. The CEO doesn't understand what the CTO's org is doing. The CTO doesn't understand why the CEO doesn't understand their jargon. They're talking about things in terms of how many how many tickets they completed and, and the CEO wants to hear things and like how much return on investment did we get? How many dollars did we make? How much did we spend? Like that's anathema to what they do and this is anathema to what they do. They just like, they can't communicate. And the overlay over this was just everybody saying, and we really don't know if we are productive. We don't know how we stand against the market. We don't know if our people are good. We, we think they're good. They seem good, but like, how do we prove it? How do we really answer those qualify this? And so after I talked to 50 engineering leaders in a row who wow. said, I would pay for a solution to this problem. <laughs> Where we didn't You're validating your idea already. Single product <laughs> built, no lines of code written, nothing to show them. Just we think there's a problem here. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. And we think that there's a solution. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. And is it a solution that you would pay for? Yeah, I would pay if there was a solution. And and that's what kickstarted us to start the company. We took all that data, we built an alpha product, we got to Techstars in Austin, moved to Austin, we met Adam, and we started building this company. And what was fascinating at the same time, so that was 2018, and you know, all of a sudden the we were in a in a real bull market, right? Things mm-hmm. things took off, money became free. And although everyone intellectually understood for a long time that this is a real problem, in this free money economy, we were also experiencing this world where productivity was really important. Productivity is a problem that we need to solve for. But you're growing, all these companies are growing so fast. They're growing headcount so quickly. They're struggling to hire anybody at all that they're saying, our biggest problem is not, are we as productive as we could be? Our biggest problem is, do we have people? And we just need to hire people. Mm-hmm. And so efficiency kind of got thrown out the door and where we focused for that period of time was on predictability and focus, right? Okay, we hired all these people. Are we delivering software? So we did a lot of forecasting work to help essentially manage communication because ultimately this is, a people-to-people communication problem. How do we get rid of surprises? And as we went through that moment, you know, we came to the other side of the bull market, economy crashes, people are getting laid off left and right. You have, you have, I think it was Facebook that hired 100,000 people. And then, you know, yeah, they laid off 20,000, but they still hired like 80,000 people Mm -hmm. over the course of, of two, three years. 
and they're saying, oh, well, how do we manage this, right? How do we really, really make this successful? And what flipped is we're now in the do more with less world. And in order to do more with less, there's two parts to that. One is, are you doing more with less? And two is, can you communicate? Can you demonstrate mm. that you're doing more with less? And both of those things are important because if you buckle down and you do as well as you can, but it's not visible, it's not recognized, you're going to get blasted the same way, except it's really disappointing because you feel like you did what you needed to do for the company. And then the company's going to come in and say, like, you weren't actually, like, we, didn't, we didn't see it. We don't see it. We don't believe it. We didn't, we're not there. And it's a great way to create a bunch of disengaged employees. Yeah. But there is also an onus on the employee. Like the, the onus is on the communicator to communicate their message, right. not on the, the receiver. And so a big part of what we do, like we talked about earlier around cultural transformation, is also how do we help our customers actually tell the story that they want to tell? Mm. demonstrates what are we working on we're being as effective as we can we're as predictable as we can if somebody says to you we're making a bet on building this product jackie why do you think you can do it why do you think you can do it in this timeline well i pulled the data in all stacks and over the last three quarters when we set out to do something We've been able to deliver it within two weeks of when we initially said we would, 85% of the time. Yeah, it's so project impactful. that we're embarking on looks like those successful projects. And that's why I feel like I can do this, right? You can bring the data and you can wrap it in the story and you can that, that, that proof. And that engenders the trust that you need and the latitude you need to go do the work. And then I love this. Perpetuates the cycle properties. But without the data, without the storytelling, mm -hmm. it's just an argument. Well, I don't believe you, Jack. Okay, well, where do we go from here? We're an impasse. That's it. Oh, it's so good. I love, I love this the problem that you're solving because it really, I mean, it's it's across it's a cross-functional issue, right? Like there's so many of those times where I've been in executive rooms where that's literally the conversation because without the data, we can't, we can't create the insights that then create the story that help us move or change or evolve. Yeah. And, you know, back in kind of 2008 to 2010, when I was working with PepsiCo's marketing team, it was the first time I saw a true team dive into the level and layers that were needed to get, gain the data, to make, build the insights, to create the marketing plans mm -hmm. um and analytics in the people space was really non-existent like it was it was just mm -hmm. coming online about 2010 which is insane to me that you know the hr people were always all the policy and the policing and that's not my philosophy i'm sure you can you can tell i i never really felt uh connected there but as a business person why aren't we using data to solve the problem where is where are the numbers and how do you then collect those numbers in order to tell a better story yep. so it sounds like you're really solving that yeah that understanding and, of how the engineering teams are delivering 
And the data has to be multifaceted. It has to be nuanced, right? Mm -hmm. A big thing you hear out in the world is, well, you cannot reduce this work to a single number, right? It'll create perverse incentives. It'll, It'll drive people to game the system. And so it goes back to the storytelling is so important. Mm-hmm. Well, if I create a set of goals for my team that is balanced, such that if I game one, it it reduces the impact of another and makes this other metric worse, right? And we have this concept of, of dueling metrics, right? This one impacts this one. If you make them both good, you've taken this middle path and that middle path is really effective. But if you game one at the expense of the other, then ultimately your overall performance goes down. Right. You can apply that at an individual, at a team, and at an at a, at a organizational level across the board, right? If you say, you know, if you say to someone uh, in sales, we need you to close more deals, right? And say, well, how are we going to measure you closing more deals? Oh, how many dollars you close? Okay, great. Should that be one big deal or many small deals? Well, you're right. We need to be more granular and we need more predictability. So we're going to measure how you build pipeline. We're going to measure how many calls you make. Right? So if you just measure how many calls you make, people will make a lot of calls. If you measure how many calls you make and then how many of those are qualified and then what's your progression through the pipeline and how many contracts did we send out and how many actually closed. And then we say, okay, but we also want to target this size of deal. We also want it to close in a certain amount of time, right? We also don't want to like discount it crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? We're creating a composite index of, of health for the, yeah. for the go-to-market team. And it relies on predictable outcomes for all of those metrics. Mm-hmm. Ultimately show that we're following a repeatable reliable process and the scorecard says the process is really effective so when we put something that's the right shape on the top it comes out also the right shape on the bottom um and and we're applying that framework to engineering as well it's it's if we make the process really effective we can then direct that process towards the outcomes we want to create and feel confident in our ability to create those outcomes. Mm, I love that. Question back to something you were just talking about. I'm curious, when you go into, let's call it an enterprise organization, we were talking about a couple early on that might have a couple hundred engineers, 10,000 person organization, just to give some frame of reference for context. How much of what you do at All Stacks is helping them understand the tech that can enable them? And how much of it is actually educating or supporting the culture change that needs to happen around communicating yeah. and storytelling and pulling the insights from the data that you're you're mm-hmm. providing them? What's the balance there? It's a little bit of both. I mean, it's a journey for sure. We take them through, through an engagement. And our CS team, as, as well as our trial team, they they stay pretty hand in glove with our mm-hmm. customers. But there's like a, you can think of it as a train the trainer model to start. First, we yeah. oriented a set of people with the platform, understand what the data is, what does it mean, how do you use it, generic overview. And then we say, well, what are your goals this quarter as an organization? Well, let's orient the data 
let's teach you how to identify the data in support of those goals, orient towards that. Um, and then we'll show you how to present that to the rest of your team. So now your organization is aligned on a common set of data in support of a goal. And then we'll run against that, right? And, and, and we'll coach and we'll say, okay, we're seeing this, this data degrade. Here are some strategies that could, you, you could use to get it back in line. Um, and we workshop that with our customers. And then in the next phase, let's say the next quarter, we have a new set of goals, right? So we, we start to, you know, we say, okay, watch me do it. Now let's do it together. Now mm -hmm. I'll watch you do it, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the way. But at any point in that, there's going to be these special topics that come up, right? Oh, we need to present for a board meeting and we have this thing we're trying to communicate. Can you help us do that? And we'll help dive in and be like their data analyst and, and help them solve for that as well. But ultimately what we're trying to do is, and, and what we see in our most successful organizations is when our customers take ownership mm -hmm. of the process, the data, the platform and say, actually, we want to own it. We want to leverage it. We want to use it to drive the conversations. They're incredibly successful. We just had a, a we're, we're launching a case study with a company. It's now called Cloud Software Group. It used to be called Citrix. And they they went through this whole process. They And they, what they did was they cut the amount of time it takes for them to release a feature by a third. Wow. And it was just through their their ownership of the data that they got through the platform and then applying that to their behaviors every single day. That's incredible. Wow. You don't hear, I'm, I'm, when you have the case to be done, I'd love to see it because um, you don't hear that every day. And I'm in with a lot of... Um, a lot of CEOs, founders, executive teams who are having similar conversations. And it's always helpful to articulate to them that there are solutions, right? Mm -hmm. There are tools that can enable the behaviors we want to enable. Yeah. And I love hearing more about your story and understanding a little bit more about your philosophy. If somebody's listening to this and they're curious to learn more about all stacks, they want to get to know you a little bit right. better. What are the right ways for folks to reach out directly? Absolutely. Um, if they want to reach out to me personally, I'm the only person on the internet with my name. So we'll, we'll link it up in the show notes. We got uh, you. You can find me on LinkedIn. If you want to learn about Allstacks, allstacks.com is the best way. We've got case studies, videos, walkthroughs, but you can always ask for a demo, request a trial um, and, and come in that way as well. I love it. So you mentioned that um, you mentor or coach other new founders who are maybe a couple steps behind you. If one of those person, if one of those people are listening right now, what's one piece of advice that you always give founders that are just getting started? One of the things that I think is really important is to really understand what's right for your business, regardless of what you have access to. And, and then you have to reconcile those two. So I was talking to a woman recently who had a more consumer-oriented business. And where we live, it's very like B2B-oriented. And so all of the advice she was getting from the investors and advisors and everything was like, okay, you're, you need to follow this B2B framework. You need to get 
start generating revenues, sign big contracts and all this. And I said, but isn't your, your tool ultimately, like your product is around audience, mm. audience and enablement. And it's about people amplifying like their voice, right? You need a community around it. You need people to follow. Like there's going to be influencers based on the product you, you have built. Um, and it's, it wasn't even a social media platform, but it was like something where a lot of the lead gen would come through, through that kind of platform. And so, so you need to get a, like a mass of people using this to then have the weight to really do it. And that's going to require a certain amount of capital and that's going to require a different business model with a different mm-hmm. kind of bet investment. And the investors you need to talk to probably aren't the ones that you have access to. So how do we get you into the right rooms, right? Let's overcome. Mm-hmm. There's all these barriers, right? There's barriers for all the, the standard stuff, gender, race, you know, class, education, et cetera. And then there's the barriers, even if you overcome all those, like, do you even just know the right person? Do they understand your model? Do they have the experience that their counsel, their advice, their dollars are relevant to what you're doing? Mm -hmm. And if you have that disconnect, it's really hard to force it. You either make it fit, right? That might involve you physically moving across the country, across the world to be in the right spot. Um, or it might involve you changing what you do, but it's hard enough as it is to build a business. The last thing you want to do is create additional difficulties. Yeah. More headwinds. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective and for gifting us with this time with you. It's always such a pleasure to get to know new friends and just tap into a little bit more of your philosophy and how you show up as a founder and leader. So Hirsch, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having uh, me. I really enjoyed it. It was such a pleasure. And we'll see you again, guys, on the Jackie Server Show. Thank you for listening in to today's show. If there was a key message that landed with you, please share or send us a direct message on Instagram at Jackie Service and let us know. We love hearing from you. Also, to continue to keep this podcast growing, it would mean the world if you could take a minute and like and rate the show or share it with a friend. Our team is forever grateful. Until next time, we'll see you again on the Jackie Service Show.